December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. The figures. I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The drama. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooks. deep question. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. One of the things that I think makes history so compelling to people is the drama of it all. History can be dramatic in ways that no author seems able to capture in fiction. It's that old idea that truth is stranger than fiction. Well, it's also more dramatic than fiction. And nothing in my mind is more dramatic in history than the romanticism of the lost cause. How many events are made into myths or glorified by civilizations and peoples today than events in their history that would fall into the lost cause category? And I think people are fascinated by that. I mean, just look at Masada in the modern-day Holy Land. Masada, of course, the siege by the Romans of some Jewish zealots who had put themselves up on a hill to resist the attacks. They all died, either by suicide, killing, or any number of ways. It's controversial. But Masada is as much of a part of the Jewish consciousness today as it was, almost certainly, 2,000 years ago. It's still a huge tourist attraction. People still make movies about it. People still write books about it. People still do documentaries about it. It's because of the drama of that lost cause. Here in the United States, we have the Alamo, where Davy Crockett died. Talk about some romance. And a handful of Americans held off a large Mexican army for several days in a lost cause. The Alamo is still standing. It's still a tourist attraction. Heck, it still graces many of Texas's public relations brochures. More than 100 years later. 150, almost, if I'm right. And you can look at the ultimate lost cause in my mind, the Battle of Thermopylae with the 300 Spartans deciding to die to hold the pass against the giant Persian armies of Xerxes probably saved Western civilization as we know it. They're making a movie about that even as we speak. 2,500 years later, the drama and romance of the lost cause. In addition, a lot of people who enjoy the study of history are intrigued by 
pre-civilized societies. You can see it here in the United States with the fascination so many of us have with the Native American peoples and the Native American culture. Well, we all have a tribal past. I try telling people here in the States about that all the time because we've forgotten that we had one, but people in Europe and in other parts of the world are very aware that before they were civilized, I'm putting that term in quotes, they were a tribal people. All of us were at one time or another. And there is a romanticism that has cropped up about human beings' pre-civilized past. It goes way back to the eras of the romantics who believed in the concept of the noble savage and the idea that man was more pure and natural before civilization corrupted them with its values, its unnatural values, according to the romantic folks. Well, the combination in my mind of the whole idea of the lost cause and the romance and the drama involved in that combined with our romance and fascination with pre-civilized cultures comes together in a couple of personalities that I've always admired and that I've only recently come to realize are like the same figure reborn, almost. Now, I realize that one of the reasons that these two figures I'm about to discuss look so similar to me and to you, maybe, is because we, we know so little about them. It's easy for people to seem very alike when we don't have a lot of details about their lives. The less we know, the more alike they can seem. And it's possible that the more we found out about them, the less alike they would look. But on the surface, based on what we know now, there's a couple of figures from history actually separated by 18 centuries of history, but who capture both the glory and myth-making of the lost cause with the romance and fascination of tribalism. These two people both tried to do the same thing in similar circumstances. And maybe it's almost mathematical in the sense that when you get A and B, you get C. Well, maybe when you get big civilized societies encroaching on weaker tribal societies, you end up with a person like the two people I'm going to mention to you now. Maybe that's inevitable because there's others like them. But the two that I was thinking of, one was a Native American leader, very famous, a national hero in Canada, actually. His name's Tecumseh. And Americans have always admired Tecumseh, too. And, I mean, one of the famous generals in American history, General Sherman, his name is William Tecumseh Sherman, and he was not Native American. It was just testimony to how we in America admired the lost cause even of our adversaries enough to be naming our people after the losers in that struggle. Tecumseh is a fascinating character. He was born in the 1760s thereabouts 
one of the problems we have with tribal history is that there's not a lot of things written down, so we have to infer what we can. A lot of this is oral. Tecumseh, according to the tradition, born in the 1760s, probably in modern-day Ohio, a member of a band of the Shawnee tribe. And the reason that Tecumseh is famous today is that he tried to unify the Native American tribes so that they could present a unified front against the encroachment of the American Colossus that was moving westward at a scary pace, if you're a Native American. Now, the other figure that seems to me like a twin separated at birth 18 centuries before Tecumseh was a leader of the Celtic people who settled in France, modern-day France. The Romans called them Gauls. And of course, this is an example that we all have a tribal past. Comes at different times, but there's a tribal stage of development in all of our backgrounds. The person I'm talking about is, I'm going to hope that the name is correct because there's several different possible translations, but Vercingetorix. Now, he's famous. There are statues of him in France today, just as there are portraits of Tecumseh hanging in the homes of many Native Americans today, because both of them fought the good fight in what was basically a lost cause in trying to protect their tribal societies from destruction by their larger, more civilized, more powerful neighbors. Whereas Tecumseh was trying to unify the Indian tribes to fight the American Colossus, Vercingetorix was trying to unify the Gallic tribes to face the Roman Colossus. Whereas Tecumseh's adversaries on the field of battle, mainly a man named William Henry Harrison, who turned out to be the ninth president of the United States, turned out to lead the nations that were fighting the tribes, the adversary for Vercingetorix, was a man whose name should be familiar to you, Julius Caesar, who went on to lead Rome. Both those men made their careers and their reputation, essentially, fighting these unifiers of the tribes. Now, Vercingetorix, as far as anyone can tell, born to a tribe of Gauls called the Averni. They don't know when he was born. He died in... 46 BC, and they don't know his age. But both of these men came of age at a time when the wars that they were going to lead were already lost causes. By the time Tecumseh got it in his head that the Native Americans had to unify to fight the Americans, the chances of beating the Americans were slim indeed. They were non-existent without unity, but slim even with unity. Vercingetorix in the same situation. Those two men were fighting the last gasps. I mean, by the time you get to the late 1800s in the United States, where many of our most famous Indian wars happened, 
there was never any doubt about the outcome. When Custer was wiped out, facing a combined army of Sioux, Cheyenne, and Comanche, it was a temporary setback, and everyone knew it. The Sioux knew they weren't going to win, and the United States government knew they weren't going to lose. When the U.S. government was fighting the Apaches in Arizona and New Mexico in the 1860s, 70s, and even the 1880s, they knew they weren't going to lose, and the Apaches knew they weren't going to win. When Tecumseh was attempting to unify the Native Americans in the late 1700s, early 1800s, they still stood a chance. It was a slim chance, but there was a chance. When Vercingetorix was trying to unify the Gauls in the 50s, the BCs, 52 BC, right around there, the odds were stacked against him, but there was still a chance. That's the romance of the lost cause. It's the romance of the fight of tribal societies to try to resist the encroachment by civilization. It's like a double romance there for a lot of us. Those of us who love pre-civilized societies, there's a romance there. Those of us who love the lost cause, there's a romance there. You combine the two of them and you can see why there are still statues of Fair King Getterix in Europe. And you can see why there are still paintings hung in Native American homes of Tecumseh. Now, a little bit about each man. Tecumseh, from what we can tell, was a rather large Native American, about six foot two, according to those who saw him. A great speaker, able to move men with his words. Like Vercingetorix, he lost his father at a very early age. He was about six when his father was killed fighting the Americans. He was raised by his older brother. In fact, Tecumseh had a younger brother who was also a prominent figure in Native American history, someone known as the Prophet. He had a religious quality about him that we see re-emerging throughout Native American history. The famous ghost dance that the Sioux were involved in in the 1890s that eventually led to the Battle of Wounded Knee is just another example of this religion that would crop up from time to time in Native American history, prophesizing the downfall of the white man and the ability of Native Americans to restore their society. And Tecumseh and his younger brother, the prophet, sort of worked hand in hand to try to convince tribes that were not that enthusiastic to come over to their side and make a last stand against the Americans. And according to history, the event that pushed Tecumseh over the edge was a treaty that several chiefs signed with future president of the U.S., William Henry Harrison, after a big battle. It was called the Treaty of Fort Wayne. And at the time, Harrison was the governor of a territory called Indiana Territory. And this Treaty of Fort Wayne dictated that 2,500,000 acres of territory would be transferred from the tribes to the U.S. Several different chiefs signed on board with this. 
Tecumseh freaked out, to use a modern term. Now, the land that was being transferred wasn't even Shawnee land, most of it. But Tecumseh saw the bigger picture. He saw that the Americans were using a divide-and-conquer strategy, playing the tribes off against each other, making friends with tribes you didn't want to fight today so that you could concentrate on tribes you did, and then later on going back to the tribes you made friends with today and then going to war with them, or making demands that essentially said, you go here and live on this reservation or you go to war. Tecumseh saw that the tribes that didn't want to fight were simply putting off the inevitable, and that by the time they were forced to fight, they wouldn't have allies to fight with. He tried to get them allies. And like Verkingeterex, Tecumseh found less than passionate support even among his own people. The Shawnee were simply too afraid of getting on the bad side of the Americans because the Americans were a steamroller by that point. It's very human, isn't it, to hold out hope that just because things have gotten bad that they won't get any worse. What Tecumseh was saying is you're dreaming. It's going to get worse, and this is our last chance. Verkingeterex was doing the same thing 18 centuries before in Celtic Gaul. He was facing Roman legions and a leader who was fantastic at the divide-and-conquer strategy, who would make some tribes the friends of Rome while he concentrated on the more antagonistic ones, and then eventually even the Friends of Rome tribe started getting dictated to. And when you got dictated to by these civilized powers, it was a do-it-or-else kind of dictation. You could fight the Romans, or you could do what we told you. Same thing the Americans were doing in Indian country. We don't want to go with, to war with you, so move peacefully to this new area we're going to set aside for your tribe, or there will be war. And in fairness to both the Romans and the Americans, they saw threats in these regions. The Romans had a terrible memory of Celtic warriors attacking Italy, sacking Rome. Their history recorded it. It was generations previously, but the Gauls as the Romans called them, were a thorn in the side of Rome, just as the Native Americans were a scary frontier danger if you happen to be living in a log cabin at the edges of what was the United States. If you were living in Indiana Territory, there were occasionally massacres. Frontiersmen had their homes raided, their families killed, people scalped. It did happen. I think modern history provides a very good example that you don't need much of a threat to overreact, get scared, and decide that it's just time to eliminate the problem once and for all. Caesar felt that way, and so did the Americans. In addition, it helps when there are positive byproducts, right? Caesar saw that Gaul was rich and fertile, and it would be to Rome's benefit to incorporate it into its sphere of influence, just as the United States, even if they didn't have plans on encroaching into Indian territory, could see it as a positive byproduct if they did. We would get safety, security, and oh yeah, all this great land. Very human nature, don't you think?
Now, it's also very much a part of human nature to realize that we only seem to drop our petty quarrels with each other when it's darn near too late. The Celts that Verkin Gatorex was trying to unite, were trying to unite, had many grievances with each other. There were lots of intertribal rivalries and hatreds and fighting. And it was only when the Roman Colossus was upon them and had already subjugated them to a great degree that they were willing to bury their personal animosity to face the greater foe. And even at that point, many of them didn't do it. Same thing with Tecumseh. The native tribes he was trying to unite into a single force sometimes didn't like each other. And they certainly were afraid. They were afraid of what would happen if they unified and upset the Americans, just as the Celts were afraid of what would happen if they unified and rebelled against the Romans. Now, Tecumseh had something going in his favor, though, by the end. Because the United States, as it was at the time, was a young nation. By the time Tecumseh was revving up his attempts at Native American unity, the U.S. was only about 30, 35 years old. And he wasn't the only one that thought there was still a chance to resist this young republic because while he was fighting against the U.S., war broke out between the United States and Great Britain again. We call it in this country the War of 1812. A lot of people forget about the War of 1812, but the British were actually able to land in Washington, D.C. and burn our Capitol building. Uh, while we were growing up, here in the U.S., we were always taught that we won the War of 1812, and in Great Britain, they were always taught that they did. But the one group that definitely lost the War of 1812 was the Native Americans. Tecumseh, already fighting the U.S., allied with the British against the Americans. That was a very smart move. If the American Colossus is already bearing down upon you and you're at your last gasp, made sense to find another group of white men to ally with in the hopes that they would help turn the tables. It didn't work out that way. Tecumseh and his followers were decimated in several battles, but the worst was the Battle of the Thames, where he was killed, and he was killed early in the battle. And the idea of Indian unity, which not did not work out, real well anyway, died with him. Tecumseh was unable to get the tribes to join him in any sort of a unified effort. And his hope had been to be able to set a boundary. He believed that the land that was owned by Native Americans was owned collectively, and he pushed this point all the time. The idea that one tribe couldn't sell their land because it wasn't their land. It was our land, was the way he was phrasing it. And that if they presented a unified front, they could maybe stop American expansion at the Ohio River, set a boundary between Native American land and U.S. land. A speech has come down to us. And when these things make it into the history books, no one knows how accurate they are. 
But there is a speech that we're in possession of that is attributed to Tecumseh. And what we have written down to us about Vercingetorix makes it sound like he spoke the same way. Let me read you, and in a sense, not do justice, let me just say in advance, to the words that we're told Tecumseh spoke in 1811 in an attempt to try to get some of the more powerful tribes in the region, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, to join his movement. Here are the words of Tecumseh. We meet tonight in solemn council, not to debate whether we've been wronged or injured, but to decide how to avenge ourselves. Have we not courage enough to defend our country and maintain our ancient independence? Where today are the Pequot? Where are the Narragansett, the Mohawk, the Poconet, and other powerful tribes of our people? They have vanished before the avarice and oppression of the white man. As snow before the summer sun, so it will be with you. Soon your mighty forest trees will be cut down to fence in the land. Soon their broad roads will pass over the graves of your fathers. You too will be driven from your native land as leaves are driven before the winter storms. Sleep no longer, O Choctaws and Chickasaws, in false security and delusive hopes. Before the white man came among us, we knew neither want nor oppression. How is it now? Are we not being stripped day by day of our ancient liberty? How long will it be before they tie us to a post and whip us and make us work for them in their fields? Shall we wait for that moment or shall we die fighting? Shall we give up our homes, our country bequeathed to us by the great spirit, the graves of our dead and everything that is dear and sacred to us without a struggle? I know you will cry with me, never, Never! War or extermination is now our only choice. Which do you choose? I know your answer. Those are the words of Tecumseh. And as I said, the words recorded by Julius Caesar of Vercingetorix sound very similar. The liberty of their people was what they were hoping for, and unity was their means to get it. Now, I said when we started this little conversation that the lost cause is something that attracts us all. There's a drama to it. We are fascinated by the inevitability of what we know is going to happen in the case of Tecumseh and what we know is going to happen in the case of Vercingetorix. And yet, they marched to their fate in the attempts of preserving their way of life. That's very attractive to all of us. That's why they're still heroes today. Tecumseh, it seems to me, had the better end. As I said, he died in the midst of his attempts at creating a unified bloc to fight the Americans and preserve his people's way of life. He saw Native Americans not as single tribes, but as a single people, 
their King Gedorex was less successful. He was more successful at unifying the Gallic tribes than Tecumseh was at unifying the Native Americans. But in the end, a more tragic tale, maybe. For the Romans succeeded in penning up the followers of Vercingetorix and the Gallic king as well in a hill fort called Elysia. And the Romans, showing one of the advantages of the civilized armies, were able to build a giant double wall around Elysia and starve the Gauls into submission. And Vercingetorix was forced to surrender in order to save the people still alive in the hill fort. He was taken captive by the Romans, held in prison for five years, and eventually brought out in a cage during a Roman triumph, which is a festival celebrating a general or a leader or a victory, and ritually strangled in front of the Roman crowd. So dies the tribal attempts at maintaining their way of life. Again, the doomed, romantic efforts at leading a lost cause have stayed with us forever. Vercingetorix is a national hero in France, 18 centuries after his death. And Tecumseh is a national hero among Native Americans, revered more now than they were in their own day. Again, because we human beings have a soft spot in our heart for the romance of pre-civilized societies and the drama of the lost cause. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. I welcome this kind of examination, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Game six of Manhattan urgent. Marine six. Tower two has had a major explosion and what appears to be a complete collapse surrounding the entire area. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Violiner. Let the word go forth from this time and place. Not quite to the morning mass of the humanity. This was our price now. That's one small step for man, one December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Number two has had a major explosion and what appears to be a complete collapse surrounding the entire area.